This podcast is brought to you by Lacrosse All-Stars, growing the game one podcast at a time. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Know the Game podcast presented by Lacrosse All-Stars. I'm your host, Ryan Conwell, analyst and NCAA editor with Lax All-Stars. I know we have had a little bit of a break, but have no fear. We have an excellent guest lined up for you this week. It is Kevin Rice, a current attackman with the Atlanta Blaze in the MLL, former attackman for Syracuse University. While at Syracuse, Rice was a two-time All-American, which also included a senior year where he was the Turnbull Award winner as National Attackman of the Year. And in that senior year, he also won the ACC Tournament MVP Awards and was a Tuarton finalist. He used that career to launch himself into the MLL, where he was originally with the Rochester Rattlers, before going down to the Atlanta Blaze, where he is now in his third season with that franchise. While with Atlanta, Kevin has been a two-time MLL All-Star, and in 2016, he was actually putting up MVP quality numbers before his season was cut short due to injury, which is something he does bring up later on in our interview. I caught up with Kevin this past weekend before the Blaze took on the Boston Cannons. Kevin had a performance in that game that actually gave him the Warrior Offensive Player of the Week honors in the MLL, but it was really a lot of what brought him up to this point, which is what dominated our conversation. You're going to hear some of Kevin's thoughts on the state of the NCAA game right now, and you're going to hear about what brought him up to this point in his career, which includes a different path on his way to Syracuse, where he was slightly under-recruited, and you're also going to find out why he chose a profession outside of lacrosse for his Monday through Friday gig. But more than that, you're going to learn more about how he views the game, what are some of the things that he sees wrong with NCAA lacrosse right now, and also just how he views the way offense and lacrosse should be played. But before we bring you Kevin, let's take a moment and recognize our sponsor, Summit Lacrosse Ventures. Summit Lacrosse Ventures runs camps, clinics, and tournaments all over the country. And this covers men's, boys, girls, women's lacrosse. So chances are, if you're listening to this, they have something for you. While they're mostly known for their epic tournament up in Lake Placid, New York, there's lots more to offer. So go check out their website, summitlacrosseventures.com, and see if there's something near you. All right, now let's go to our interview with Kevin Rice. This week we are here with Kevin Rice of the Atlanta Blaze, former Syracuse attackman, and right now he is in the middle of his 2018 season and also a Team Canada hopeful. Um, so, Kevin, um, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, really quick, those were a couple talking points, but you know, quick uh, 60 second background. Um, you know, where what brought you to this point in the MLL? Uh, I grew up in Skinny Alice, New York, uh, in the Finger Lakes, about a half hour west of Syracuse. Um, my dad played at St. Lawrence, um, was a high school coach for 30-plus years. Um, all of my sisters played, so I played my whole life. Uh, ended up getting recruited by Syracuse through the uh, Empire State Games, uh, and then had a career there and ended up uh, playing for Rochester my rookie year and being traded to Atlanta during the expansion season. Now, uh, you mentioned the Empire State Games there, rest in peace. Those were, uh, that was a pretty legendary tournament that we used to have. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, you know, it's 
for people who don't know, it's set up like the Olympics where all the athletes from the different regions of New York come and play and, uh, you know, every sport is represented and, uh, you know, you're there for two weeks and, and it's a really great experience and, you know, it's a shame that kids now don't have the chance to play in it. Yeah, because I've heard some other players recently. Um, I think uh, Palasek was on the Game Changer podcast, and he was also talking about how that really factored into his recruitment as well because uh, there aren't many chances where you get a team from Central New York. And, you know, in, in the Empire context, Central New York was um, North Country down through Binghamton. Um, and then you had Long Island, New York City, Western, which, um, you know, a lot of people can think of now is Rochester and Buffalo, all those high schools, each of those put together a team of players. So, I mean, that's a pretty intense process to make that in the first place. Yeah, it was. Um, and for me personally, I played soccer and basketball in high school as well. Um, and didn't really play club lacrosse at all. I didn't go to any recruiting camps. I didn't do anything like that. So, um, it was my really only opportunity besides under armor underclassmen tournament to, uh, be recruited by the bigger schools um i'd been looking at some smaller schools in upstate and um, some smaller d1 schools around the country but it was my first real opportunity to be recruited and fortunately dylan donahue made the team too and so uh, his dad came to all of our practices and all of our games so got sort of a private audition with the syracuse coaching staff uh, and ended up working out um i do think that's a another interesting thing is you did play a lot of other sports um but also club lacrosse wasn't huge by the time you were in high school either i mean there was definitely the roadhawks were around what else was even out there uh well the roadhawks were the main team um my sophomore year i went to a tryout with the roadhawks didn't make it so didn't play club lacrosse at all is that the the michael jordan cut from the jv team type of story Uh, it might be yeah um the coach was the CBA Christian Brothers Academy coach and um, sort of harbored some Liberty League upstate grudges after that. Um, and other than that, you didn't really have any other options. Um, I know a few started to pop up my senior year, um, but by then, you know, I was done with that that phase of my lacrosse career. Yeah. Um, so fast forward a couple of years, you get to Syracuse. Um, you're actually one of the few people that you were seeing some pretty considerable time, even as a freshman. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. Um, you know, I came in and sort of was a shooter, mid range shooter, finisher type in high school. And then my senior year of high school sort of started to turn into, uh, the point guard type role I played in basketball. Um, you know, and at Skinhouse, I was fortunate. We had, four or five division one middies at a small class C school. And so we ran fast breaks almost exclusively. And so I didn't really ever have to dodge much until my senior year. Um, and I think when I got to Syracuse, you know, by the time I adjusted to the, to the speed of the game, it was almost the spring. And you now I was right on the edge of being the fourth attackman, you know, second line midfielder and decided not to redshirt. Um, played a little less than I thought maybe I, I was going to, but the experience of traveling and being with the first group was definitely helpful later in my career. What is that transition like going from a small school? Because how big is Skinny Atlas? Uh, I graduated with 140 kids, maybe. All right, so 140 kids and you know the whole school. 
Um, do you have a freshman team there? No. <laughs> just, just JV? JV and varsity, yeah. Um, some years, no JV, depending on how many guys we have. All right, so you go from that to Syracuse, which is usually 50-plus on the <laughs> roster. Um, you know, you go talk to a lot of people that have been in major club programs as well as, you know, gigantic schools because, uh, you know, your head coach here at the Blaze, Liam Banks, you know, he was a graduate at Ward Melville, which right. is, you know, another gigantic school. Right. Is is that itself a bit of a learning curve too, that many players with that much talent around? Um, it was and it wasn't because, you know, I was fortunate, didn't really realize it at the time, but for such a small school, my, my grade and the grade above me, we had probably 10 or 11 total division one players and you know four or five more high level division three players and so we didn't have much depth but the quality players we had were really quality and so you know sort of was used to playing with good players and then you know I think growing up in upstate I had great coaches um, Ron Doctors is Skinnell's head coach and he played at Syracuse and you know my dad started the program at Jordan Elbridge and um, you know, my sisters all played, and so I was around the game my whole life. So there was no learning curve in terms of the the game itself, which obviously the the physicality and the speed was much different. But um, I think it was easier for me to transition because it was sort of like, okay, I need to adjust my dodging just based off of you know I'm going against Brandon Mullins now instead of you know some kid from Tully, and so just a difference in in that but the game itself didn't change much which i i was fortunate to grow up where i did yeah and also i think it's important to mention that where you were playing your high school lacrosse and translating that into college um you know one of your big rivalries was right across a couple of hills there to lafayette and mm-hmm. there, there were a couple of good players there right yeah i mean my there were six teams in our league um one was lafayette with you know my sophomore year they had john greeley Miles and Lyle Thompson and uh you know so we played them three times a year and then one of the other teams in our league was Casanova with Joe Nardella the Canizero brothers um and you know a bunch of other D1 players that come out of that school so I think you know go to some of our sectional playoff games in in that that league and and the quality was as high as you'll get um we might not have had the depth one through ten as maybe you know Baltimore or Long Island but those top teams were were there no you said how you didn't really start becoming a initiator type of um, you know true ex attackman until your senior year, um, and some of that came from point guard play in basketball. Um, but being around so much lacrosse growing up with you know the son of a coach, um, you know being a sibling of other players, you had to have been playing backyard lacrosse pretty much your whole memory right I was yeah I played a ton um but as much as I played the other sports you know I sort of played everything I could when I was little and I never really wanted lacrosse to be my thing there were times where I resented it a little bit because my dad was um a coach and my sister Stephanie was on varsity in seventh grade and was like a four-time first team all-american in high school and so it was sort of like her thing and um you know I was playing AAU basketball and you know sort of thought it was what I was going to end up doing and so I sort of had a late start with lacrosse being the focus but I think it ended up being good for me because by the time I switched I wasn't burned out you know there were kids who had been doing it all year round for five years and you know by the time they're juniors in high school they're just they've meet reached their peak and you know I was just sort of discovering that I could use my left hand and, you know, that I could dodge and 
that stuff. So it was uh, a little late developing, but I think it was beneficial in the long run. So I'm curious, with a late development like that and going to a school like Syracuse, how much did you learn about lacrosse there versus um, I can think about getting to a school and learning their system and how they play versus learning more of the game? So what what were some of the things you actually learned about the game while you were at Syracuse? Yeah, I think um, Coach Donahue, who runs the offense at Syracuse, um, I owe most of what I've got in my career from him just because, you know, I think I, I knew – all the pieces of the game I needed to growing up, but he recognized what my inherent abilities were and put me in spots where I could become um, what I ended up being instead of, you know, me just thinking, you know, I'll play the right wing and shoot from 10 yards and, you know, finish on the crease, you know, moving me to X and, and sort of utilizing um, the talents that I do have in ways that I hadn't used before and hadn't seen before. Um, and, you know, I'm sort of uh, a junkie for film and for watching the game and sort of the mental aspect of the game because, you know, not everyone can be Mikey Powell and run by people or Jordan Wolf and just blow past people. So, you know, you got to play angles and understand rotations and understand the way guys, what certain defenders like to do. And so, you know, being able to go into his office and sit there for three hours and watch, you know, Tanner Scales highlights from Virginia know the week before the game and just to see you know if you show him this he'll do this and and that sort of stuff I really enjoyed with him and and it really helped me learn um I I do kind of love that part of it too where you are digging into film because did you do any of that in high school because there's some high school programs that are starting to get into film study a bit more yeah I mean we watched um film when it got closer to the playoffs in high school and it was more just because high school especially then um i mean you could go to lax power and maybe look up you know what uh you know corning east was doing before the playoffs but once you got out of your section you didn't really know the guys as well um so we just we're trying to look for sets and it was much less than you do in college obviously but we did a little bit so did you actually have to like learn how to truly study film or um did you kind of know going in what you wanted to get out of it each time uh that's an interesting question i think probably with anything you know the more you do it the more you sort of understand what to look for um i don't watch a 60 minute game anymore you know that sort of thing it's it's more breakdowns of what you're specifically looking for but um i think the syracuse staff does a really good job with that um not just in the full team group but just being available for positioning groups and you know one-on-one film stuff if you want it now you talk about the syracuse staff and that group has been there for quite a while they've really coached together a long time um but when you think about the syracuse style historically it's you know supposedly the the running gun the masters of that especially under roy simmons jr you know where they really came into their own with that sort of style letting players play um how much of that did you feel was still there when you were a player versus turning in into much more of this um control and possession based lacrosse because there, there definitely were some years where um syracuse turned into a, a serious possession team I think it's a product of the rules of the game. I think it's always right below the surface, and if you know they could, they would play the same way they always have. But um, you know, my sophomore year when we made the championship game, there was no shot clock at all, even if they wanted to put a timer on. And so 
you know, we'd have Notre Dame on a six minute possession to start the game. And so what are you going to do? You're not going to push four on four the next way down because your defense has just played six minutes of defense. And we were pretty, we struggled facing off that season. And so you don't get possessions. And so when you don't get possessions, you have to take care of it and make sure you get looks. And, um, you know, we play teams who, you know, they, their objective in a possession is just to shorten the game, not to score. And so when that happens, um, you know, you, you sort of have to adjust. You can't be stubborn and, and try to play the way, you know, you think you used to or you should. Uh, we try to do some of it, but you do it within reason and what you can. Um, I think it's something that if you watch the MLL, it's much better because the shot clock makes you actually play lacrosse. Yeah. Um, I was watching the Ivy League championship game last weekend with Cornell and Yale, and Yale had a three-minute possession to start the game and scored the announcers were talking about what a great possession it was and it was an awful possession i mean it took them three minutes to score cornell played three minutes of defense there's no sport there's no other sport that's physical like lacrosse where you can have the ball for that long and not either score or lose the ball so i just think without rule changes no one is can be free really so uh, that actually makes me think about the 2014 World Games. Um, I'm assuming you watched that one, right? I did, yes. The, the gold medal game. Um, so I want to know your thoughts on that one because there's definitely no shot clock in international play or the FIL rules. And my feeling towards a lot of it was is Canada, you know, Canada was trying to win gold. So they would toss it back to Curtis Dixon, Mark Matthews, one of those guys who would just go towards the corner, and the U.S. defense would stand back and watch them. How much of that do you think is supposed to be on the defense being too risk-adverse to actually press out and try to force an issue versus the rules do allow too much of that, whether it's too much space for the attack, whether it's not a, a time uh, or a shot clock pushing them to force the issue. So I guess where do you think the equation really sits with that? Yeah, I don't want to um, make it sound like I'm begrudging the teams who do that at all because that's the, those are the rules. You know, if you're playing a team who, if you try to run and gun with, you're going to lose, you know, your coach is a bad coach if he doesn't slow it down and you don't stall. I mean, that's you, the point of the game is to win the game. And so – you know, our junior year, we lost to Bryant in the first round, and Kevin Masso was 21 of 22 facing off, and they had the ball most of the game, and, you know, we rushed it when we got it, and, and I never blamed Bryant for that. You know, that's how they have to play, and that's how Canada had to play to win that game. And so, you know, being on what what would be the U.S. side of that, so I'm in college, it's a fine line. You know, I was there for our defense's discussions about how much do we press because – you know, every team has players. You just named Curtis Dixon and Mark Matthews. You know, if you're going to go chase them, you're going to get scored on. So it's a fine line between, you know, how much fundamental defense do you play and how much do you let them dictate tempo. Right, and I remember the same thing happened when Syracuse was in a uh, final game, uh, the women team, the women's team against um, Northwestern. That was brutal. And Northwestern would just sit back at X uh, because every single time Syracuse did say, all right, three minutes have passed, we need to do something they would go out and press two passes goal yeah and it would just be mm -hmm. like that qu that quick like you're saying that there there is a very big risk factor depending on who it is you're facing too no question and i think you know i have great respect for the women's game because you know they looked at something that is just logically 
couldn't be the rules. You can't have basketball type defensive rules and an unlimited shot clock. There's a reason basketball put a shot clock in because UNC used the four corners offense for, you know, a decade and, and that's not basketball anymore. And, you know, the women had three national championship games in a row where, you know, a team had the lead with 12 minutes left and that was the last time the ball changed hands. And that's just not the sport. And so, you know, they responded accordingly and put in the 90 second shot clock. And I would, there are many women's lacrosse games I would rather watch now than men's games because they're much more exciting. And, you know, the girls make plays and they're great athletes and, you know, they're doing and they're playing free and, and, you know, I, I see complaints about turnovers and, and whatnot, but that's just a product of being aggressive. You know, that's they're aggressive turnovers. It's not stick work. So Yeah, and I've seen a few women's games this year um, where there's comebacks that happen that don't happen without the shot clock. I mean, the other team is forced to do something with the ball, um, and if the defense is doing what they're supposed to, the offense is forced with five seconds left, you know, they're in the back corner and they can't do anything. All right. It's a turnover and the ball goes the other way. <laughs> yeah. No question. I mean, anytime you have, you have a, uh, a strict limit on the amount of time one team can have the ball, you're always going to have more chances for the other team. Um, and it just adds more to the game. You know, I don't, I don't really see the argument uh, for men's about why they don't have one. If you don't want the 60 second shot clock, that's fine. It's a little fast. Um, it puts more of an emphasis on being able to clear quickly because if you take the full 30 and now you have 30 to play offense, um, but make it 90 like the girls and, and go from there. Um, I'm actually curious as you've gotten used to the MLL rules uh, with the 60 second shot clock, is there any frustration on in your hands when you're behind the cage there's five seconds left and you have to dump the ball off because I know your entire life leading up to the MLL, that is something that you had never done. Um, so it, does it, does it hurt a little bit when you have to roll the ball back there? <laughs> uh, it doesn't at all, honestly. I mean, I think if you care that much about what your turnover stats are, then I don't really want you to, what don't want to play with you. Um, it's like, in the NBA, guys who won't you know shoot a half court shot at the end of a quarter because they don't want their three point percentage to go down, those aren't the type of players you want on your team. Um, you know, I'd rather be the one with the ball with ten seconds left on the shot clock to make that critical juncture decision about whether we have an opportunity to jam the crease or to throw a skip pass and whether it's worth the risk of a quick transition the other way. Um, I love the shot clock not only because it speeds up the game, but it adds that. It's just another layer to the mental element of the game because there's so much that goes into how you play a possession when you only have 60 seconds, how long the ball stays up top, how long it rotates around before you initiate, um, you know, those sort of things that you don't really have to worry about in college. Um, when you think about the shot clock and especially playing towards the end of it, you had mentioned, you know, the last 10 seconds of a shot clock. Have you noticed a difference with players that grew up with a box background because they're used to that a little bit more that seven seconds still feels like an eternity because, you know, with a 30-second shot clock and box, um, you know, you just still might just be halfway into your actual possession by the time you cleared it and got everyone on the floor. Um, have you noticed a difference with the type of players you're with with that? Uh, I think a little bit for sure, especially the young American players in the MLL, you know, rookies and maybe your first full year in the league again, um, just because it's so abnormal to you. Um, I remember it, it was helpful that, you know, I played basketball my whole life because it's the same thing. You know, you're used to under 10, you still have time to get a full pick and roll and 
and do that action but you know it, it can seem quick um but that's where you just as a veteran you have to sort of talk your young guys through you know this is what we'll do at these these points in the shot clock and a lot of it is just uh communication you know if you know there's 20 you know there's 15 you know there's 10 then you know you still have some time left but if you just look up and there's eight that's when sort of the panic type plays happen now I'm actually curious. I just brought up the box for a different reason, but I'm thinking about it. I actually knew you as a box player more than anything for a while because um, including some of your time in Syracuse, you actually did play a couple games with the Red Hawks down in Onondaga too, correct? Yeah, I played actually almost the entire summer um, with the Red Hawks, uh, which was an awesome summer. It was between my sophomore and junior year i think of at syracuse um and then you know when we got to the playoff time uh it was time to go back to syracuse which was kind of upsetting because you know the team went on to win and uh it was it was a great team to be a part of though i mean our our first line was lyle and miles and jeremy and jerome and brett bucktooth was our first offensive line and you know, I played a lot of transition and got to do things that I don't normally do in some environments that I don't normally play in. Um, do you actually have any interest? Um, and my, the ship might have sailed by this point, but um, getting looks at the NLL, because I know there's a lot of attention on that league right now as they are looking at expanding, trying to get more American players in, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, your teammate, uh, Dylan Donahue was even on the Team USA tryouts recently um, back in January. Is that something that you do have interest in of trying to get the indoor game going again? Or do you prefer to focus on MLL? Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely would have loved to try right out of college, right out of Syracuse. Um, And last year I thought about it, but was recovering from an ACL injury and sort of didn't want to put it in that high-stress environment. Um, But now I think I'm healthy and I would consider that sort of opportunity. All right, cool. Um, also with the World Games, um, an interesting thing came up, of course, where uh, you didn't get the the invites with USA, um, so you actually wound up going to the Team Canada tryouts. Um, how did that come about? As Coach Huntley primarily, um, you know, he's good friends with my parents or was good friends with my parents, Um and you know, I have a grandma who's Canadian, and so I, that's that's the requirement. And so, um, you know, they just sort of talked about it. And you now I've played with those guys now for the last four years, three and a half years. And you know, some of those guys are what I would consider my best friends in lacrosse. You know, Jeremy Noble and Mark. You know, Mark Matthews until this season had been my roommate on the road for my entire MLL career, and you know, Dylan Ward and guys like that. And so it was sort of a no-brainer to play with them. And, um, of course, by the time we're recording this, there's still a lot of unknowns there. But, um, you know, this is a interesting year to be trying to join in with Team Canada, right? Yeah, I mean, I'll sort of let that play out without yeah. much comment. Hopefully we can get you over there, get you to the World Games, um, see you suited up there. Um, I think a couple more things I want to kind of bug you about is with the MLL, um, you had mentioned uh, you did tear your ACL recently. Um, a lot of that rehab has to happen on your own. But when you were at Syracuse, I don't think you had any major injuries there, right? So that's no. that kind of like your first 
time to go about it and you were going to law school at that <laughs> at that same time what what did that rehab process look like for you it was awful to be honest i mean i, I rehabbed once or twice a week at seven in the morning before school with a rehab facility that was not sports oriented so um you know i it was it wasn't good i mean to be honest and it took a long time and i'm still i think i'm finally getting there um you know last year our first game of the season was nine months to the day from my surgery which is the normal time frame but i was still at a 30 percent muscle deficit in my left leg and was sort of you know Structurally, it was fine, but it was just not there. And so I think last season was sort of a, a struggle for me mentally, especially just because you're used to be able, being able to do things and you can't do them anymore. Um, and uh, I think it's this season it's getting there. So, um, you know, I'm excited about that and uh, excited to be feeling healthy again. Yeah, and I have heard that a lot with injuries in the past where the mental – aspect of it of just knowing that you can't immediately do what you were doing even though you feel like you should be able to can actually be one of the toughest parts of the rehab for sure and I think you know the way and when my injury happened um, you know I was playing the best across of my life by far that season um, you know needed one more game to break the points record with you know four games left and uh, you know, we were an expansion team, but we were 500 and we were a game out of the playoffs. And, you know, I was playing midweek and just like everyone does, you know, you're trying to stay in shape and caught a jam as I was cutting and, you know, knew what happened immediately and you know, broke my helmet on the ground and drove myself to the hospital because, you know, you could feel it all go in there. And I just sort of felt bad for myself for a while and then, you know, had to get over it. And uh, it's it's just one of those things that eventually happens, and uh, it's sort of the nature of the MLL. Yeah. Um, one of the last things I want to bring up is also you're just finishing up law school right now. Um, you're someone that has been somewhat vocal in the past about – um, not having the one path to being an MLL player that a lot of people tend to talk about. So um, the, the kind of the party line that a lot of people have is have a great college career, get picked up by an MLL team, grow your personal brand, run your own camps and clinics, or get in with uh, you know some players that have already have something established. Um, why is that not for you? Um, I just don't enjoy the clinic circuit um you know i i love the kids love the game and i i love doing it every once in a while it's just not something i can do i can do and be energetic about and you know give the kids what they deserve if they're going to pay to go to something like that um you know i think i just i enjoy the game for for different reasons than you know sort of teaching it and you know, looking back on it, if if I had done it a different way, I would have probably tried to get into college coaching because I think I would have enjoyed that just because the players are at a level where, you know, it's it's more um, nuanced and you can sort of you know, really get into the game more than you can at a clinic because I think anytime you see one player for three hours once, you know, it's sort of there's limited things you can do and you're doing the same drills at each clinic in a different city and it just sort of feels hollow to me because what am I really teaching them you know and what are they really getting out of it and you know and how long is that sustainable for so um you know I made the decision I was a history major at Syracuse I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do 
so took Dallasad and ended up doing well. And, you know, if I had done poorly, I might have ended up coaching somewhere and, and you know, doing something different. Um, I, I do appreciate, um, you know, doing the, the same drills in different cities because it definitely is a grind. And I think the players that do talk about it, they, they don't hide that fact. I mean, you, you do have to love working with kids across all the different places because it is a very different model than being a college coach or being a coach at a high school program where you also might be a teacher in the school too. Um, it's, it's a very different type of life. Yeah, no question. I think I just knew that that wasn't for me. You know, I spent one call co- one summer in college in Atlanta working with the LB3 program and I really enjoyed that summer. But by the time the summer was over, I just knew that, you know, it's like any internship where you try something and you go to a field and you decide whether that sort of job or career path is for you. And I knew that it wasn't. So when I had that in mind, I sort of, I I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And, you know, in Syracuse, it's sort of a bubble of, you know, it's a fishbowl type atmosphere with lacrosse. And, you know, I was ready to sort of distance myself a little bit from it. Um, I didn't really want to hop into right away being a grad assistant or something. And so decided to go to law school and the years at law school go by quickly. So it seems like I just got there and, you know, it's three years later and I'm done now. So, um, you know, I think, I'll be starting a job in the legal career, but I don't think I'm necessarily in that forever. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the path you are following with law school, a lot of people that do that, it isn't, you know, you know, following the, the suits, (laughs) suits timeline of you go in as an associate, you do your time there, you work your way up, get a partnership, get your name on the building and then, you know, retire, you know, 40 years later, it's, it's not always that path. A lot of people do take that and, you know, they, they do a lot of different things with it. Um, so it's not necessarily a limiting option either. Yeah, no question. I think, you know, I was fortunate in that my resume is sort of unique in terms of the normal law school applicants. And with the LSAT scores, I was able to get a scholarship to wake. So it was sort of a no, no brainer for me in terms of, I'm really just investing time. I'm not investing any money into this. And so, you know, to just put three years in and to leave with the JD and sort of have no more skin lost than, than just the three years was something I felt like I had to do. Because I think, you know, by still playing, I, I would hope that if I wanted to get into college coaching, I would still be able to get an opportunity somewhere. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. So I'm going to wrap up with uh, five questions we ask everybody that we have on here. Um, First one is, what's something funny from this week that just kind of, you know, makes you chuckle a little bit? Um, Well, I took my last final on Tuesday. Uh, We're recording this on a Saturday morning. And so it's been entertaining to watch people I've seen almost exclusively in a library try to have fun for the last three (laughs) or four days. So um, I'm sure people have what they can imagine law students are like, and it's probably worse than what you, you think it is. And so to watch them try to enjoy themselves has been entertaining. <laughs> I like that one. Um, what is something that you think the lacrosse community as a whole talks about too much that um, it pulls attention away from other more important things? Um, that's a good one. Uh, I'm not sure. I think, you know, people get riled up about preseason and midseason um awards and i don't think players really care and so um you know i think like in particular i just always think of the justin gutterding things where you know if he's not he wasn't a preseason first team all-american and everyone is mad on twitter but 
you know, every player knows how good he is. And so everyone knows where he'll be at the end of the season. And I think he does too. So it's just one of those things where it's like, it's probably good for him. You know, if it gives him some motivation, that's great. Yep. So the opposite of that is which things do you think are not talked about enough that should get more emphasis? The shot clock should, we talked about it almost ad nauseum earlier on this podcast, but, um, the shot clock needs to be put in at, in some form or another. And, uh, cause the game is almost, there are games that are unwatchable now. I think, you know, there's college games this weekend and it's the NCAA tournament that I won't watch just because I can't watch it. It, it just doesn't do anything. It's not the game anymore. Yep. You know, it's convoluted to a point where it's not the, the sport I really like. Yeah. So I've, I'm someone that I've gone back and forth on the shot clock thing a lot. Um, we should have the debate then. Give me the other. <laughs> give me the other side. What's the other side to it? All right. So one of the things for me is it's not the Syracuse Hopkins Maryland level that I'm worried about it with. For me, an NCAA rule goes across all three divisions, and you think mm-hmm. about, um, you know, watching a few of the Division three games. I don't think I've ever seen a D3 game, whether it's championship weekend, whether it's on a grass field in the middle of nowhere, New England, that needs a shot clock. And I think it's the the unwatchable term gets used quite a bit um, when we're talking about a lot of the D1 games that get on TV because there's so much emphasis on the possessions and having to win because... Um, you don't want to be like Rutgers again this year, you know, once again, missing out on the final four or not final four, the NCAA tournament, um, which they haven't made since 2004, but they've been right on that bubble, which makes them even more risk averse the next time around. Um, so for me, it's, it's trying to find that balance between the, the handful of teams that are really focused on having to win and will win, you know, like you said earlier, they're, they're playing to win. Um, and so how that's going to affect do those the rest teams, of it. Do those games not need a shot clock because they're already going fast enough? Yes. Is that, so yep. what does having a timer hurt? If it's 90 seconds and the possessions are going to be within 90 seconds anyways, then yep. it's sort of, and, it's and a no law situation, right? And instead the games that are on national TV, are going to be better. Yep. And it's something that I think we need to consider. What does the, the casual sports fan look at? What sport, what other sport doesn't have a shot clock besides hockey where hockey, you can't possess the puck for that long. You just can't. I mean, if you could, then that would be more power to you, but it's just not a sport with a deep pocket on your stick where the ball doesn't come out. So, um, any, any other sports fan, you know, doesn't understand the concept of why that team gets to hold the ball for that long. Right. And, and that's why I say I'm, I've gone back and forth on it. Cause I, I definitely agree with that too, of like, if it already is that fast, then it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, more headaches for the person running the table, which sure. I, I don't think anybody's going to feel too bad. For no, no. Um, so along those lines, and this is something I'm, I'm more adamant about is where do you feel about the two point line? Because those two things do get brought up together quite a bit. Shot clock equals two point line, much like in basketball, shot clock equal three point line. Sure. And I just think that there, that argument that if you have a shot clock, you need a two point line because a team will play zone is completely illogical and isn't, doesn't make uh, teams don't play a zone in the MLL, not because of the two point line. Teams don't play a zone in the MLL because you can't play a zone because you give up two-on-one opportunities on the corners everywhere. 
and guys are too good and we'll get layups. You know, if someone goes into a zone against us, I'm thinking I'm going to score on the right pipe. I'm not, we're not going to shoot it too. And so I think while in basketball, that is um, more of what happens because three point shots, you know, a good shooter is 40% where a two pointer in the MLL, if you shoot 20, 25%, you're doing your job. Um, I don't think that's, the problem you wouldn't look you don't look for twos just because someone's in a zone right and, and people do run zone in the mll which is i think something to be important there's no teams that live and die by it but it is a look that teams do throw out there it's a look where if you see zone you know your offense is clicking because no one will throw a zone you don't throw a zone unless you're you're if you're winning your matchups you're not throwing a zone and i think the two-point line doesn't make it any more or less likely that someone runs a zone. And if you're not going to score in 90 seconds against a zone, when are you going to score? I mean, it's it's not like the defense is tiring at such a rapid rate that by minute three you'll score. So. Yeah. yeah, so 90 seconds, I mean, that's enough to get several turns around, be able to run a, a, probably, what, three, four different looks, even at a reasonable pace, you know, without pushing it too hard. You can You can try a number of things and things were obviously not working that possession if you can't get it by 90 (laughs) yeah and i mean and it encourages you to play faster because if you are four on four and you play four on four they can't set in the zone you know you beat the zone down the field and now you know coaches are not this was something even with our coaches at syracuse we used to sort of push them to let me randy and dylan play three on three in the sub game because it's three on three and not six on six and so if we draw a slide at all you know, if Randy and I can sort of mess around on the right pipe and he does one of those things he does where somehow he's open and we're both open because he lost both defenders and they they want to slide, then it's Dylan wide open on the left pipe and you're playing three on three. And so the shot clock would make it an easier decision for coaches to allow you to play aggressively because you're only losing 40 seconds of possession if you turn it over, as opposed to two and a half minutes of possession if you turn it over. And you were just giving me some ACC tournament flashbacks there when you were talking about the, the three-on-three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's why I loved playing Duke. You know, And I think I played my rookie year with Rochester, and I talked to Jordan Wolf about it, and you know they loved playing us because it was sort of a mutual understanding that when we, we got to that game, it was, okay, well, both teams are really good, and both teams are just going to play. Um, and that was awesome you know it's great and you love to play that way because you know we know that we can try to make a play and if we don't and turn it over you know jordan's not going to hold it at x for two and a half minutes he's going to try to run by brandon mullins and then if that works they score if it doesn't we get our shot again so um i loved those games loved playing them in north carolina and just teams that were willing to 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 play the same way all right awesome um so that one that one turned into a much longer one than i thought it would but um so one other thing that um, I like I like to ask this because it gives an idea of where people's priorities are. But let's say you are given fifty million dollars um, to do something, but it has to be with lacrosse. You can do international, um, just in the U.S. Youth, college. I mean, that can fund a couple college programs. It can you know pay a bunch of professional players. It can expand a league. Um, it can do a lot of things, but it can't do everything. So how would you divvy that up? Well, I think um, you'd sort of have to make a, an inherent decision what, what level you put that money into. Um, 
I think you could use it in Division One programs to try to expand the men's game some to match the women's expansion, but obviously there's Title IX considerations there. Um, I think personally, I, I think the MLL game itself is better than the college game because of the rules and the level of play, and so I would probably use it and try to spruce up the MLL a little. All right, I think $50 million could spruce it up a I little think, bit. I think it would help, yeah. <laughs> All right, very last one is what is the last lacrosse game you watched for fun? Oh, uh, for fun. Because um, right, you were also someone that you said earlier on that you don't even watch a lot of the 60 minutes anymore when you're just watching film. And a lot of people, they they don't watch games for fun too much because you're working in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, my girlfriend's actually a senior at UNC, and so uh, I watched them beat Boston College in the ACC tournament last weekend and uh now i enjoy watching them play because i'm not really scouting that game you know just watching them play yep and the girls game like i said is fun you know it was high scoring and back and forth and yeah and you've been around the girls game for your whole life too having all the your sisters playing too so it's something you're definitely familiar with and you're not just picking up (laughs) yeah i mean my dad (laughs) um my dad retired from coaching men's when my sister made varsity in seventh grade and then was just going to be a fan and then the assistant coach at skiing alice retired and so they asked him to do it and so when she was in eighth grade he started being the assistant coach for the skiing alice girls team and i was in fourth grade and so guess who went to every practice mine for four years until i started playing in seventh grade so um you know it was i I saw more girls across than any boy probably should (laughs) (laughs) all right well thank you very much for coming on and i wish you good luck for the rest of the season Hopefully we see you over in Israel with Canada, and uh, good luck with everything else in law school. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it.